0: Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 25 this evening. Romans 8, 1 through 25. Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you again for the chance to get together and study your word. Lord, we pray that you would, as a psalmist, ask that you would open our eyes, that we can behold wonderful truths from your word. Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes to see, Lord, what the hope of our calling is, our position in Christ. and the blessings that you've given us through faith in you, or that you would encourage us to persevere and to do the work, Lord you've called us to do here in Hanford, in all the different places you've scattered us. In Jesus' name, we pray, Amen. So the Bible is clear that the way into eternal life and blessing is a narrow way. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Peter said to the religious leaders of Israel, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's a narrow way. And we have many illustrations of this in the Bible. The Ark, for example, only had one door. There's only one way in to the ark to be saved. Jesus also said, Strive to enter into the narrow gate, right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction, but the narrow gate is the way that leads to life. We're told in Romans 9 that the line of blessing, the seed line, only came through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into Jesus. And those who are blessed are those who have faith in Jesus. We are now sons of Abraham, spiritually, as the writer would say. Now, yes, the way is narrow to have eternal life in the way of blessing. But those of you that are believers know that it's when you go into Christ, everything opens up from there, right? As the Bible says, in Christ we have liberty, right? Where the Spirit is, there's freedom, and God has given us freedom. Christ opens our eyes to a whole beautiful world around us, right, in which we walk in Christ. It's kind of like the wardrobe in Chronicles of Narnia, right? As you go through that wardrobe there, there you are. You go into a whole beautiful world of Narnia, right, where there's things that you've never seen before, beautiful places and things and, and, and works that, that God has done. Let me give you a biblical illustration of that. Jesus said in John ten nine, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus said, yes, the, the door is narrow. It's a narrow gate. But if you enter in by me, then you'll have a life of satisfaction, fulfillment, and rest. A life where the shepherd will lead you to those still waters, right, as we learn in Psalm 23. The Apostle Paul had his own idea of what it meant to be in Christ and for God to open up his eyes to the beauties of his glory and his grace, You see, Paul entered that narrow gate there on the road to Damascus when he was actually going to persecute Christians. He was called Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. And the Lord met him there on that road, and God changed his life. And God opened his spiritually blind eyes to see the believer's position in Christ. When you read Paul's writing, especially in Ephesians, you see him use the phrase, in Christ, in him, in Christ. It means that's describing our position. That's how God sees us. He sees us in Christ. And Paul opens up our eyes to all the blessings that we have in Christ. They're called positional blessings. Over and over and over. To just summarize them, Paul says, you have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Describe that. It's all spiritual blessings. There's so many, we can't even name them all. Now, Paul in the book of Romans, here in chapter 8, describes some of these blessings that we have in Christ. And he can really summarize it by the word freedom. Freedom. Where the Spirit is, there's freedom. God has given us freedom. We have freedom from condemnation. We have freedom from the power of sin. We have freedom from fear, and we have freedom from hopelessness. And in Romans 8, 1 through 25, that's what Paul expounds on for us. He opens our eyes to the beauties and the glory that we have through our faith in Christ. So let's begin in verse 1 by seeing that there's freedom from condemnation. Therefore, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the word therefore, it's, it's an important word. It's telling us that we need to apply and to look back on what he just said. You see, in chapters 5-7, Paul taught us that God freed us from our condemnation. We were once under condemnation, Romans uh, 5.16 says, It says, therefore, as to one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. You see, that one man was Adam. And when Adam sinned in the garden, sin came into the entire line of men. Therefore, all men are born with sin, with an inherited sin nature. And we also have sin imputed to our account. But through faith in Christ, God removes that condemnation. And He can remove it because of the work that Christ did on the cross. Through Christ's work on the cross, we can have justification. The word justification means basically to be innocent of all charges, it means to be declared righteous in God's sight by the judge Himself. And God can do that, not that He compromises His justice in any way, but He can do that because when Christ died on the cross, God took the sins of the world and placed them on Christ. And so now when we believe in Christ, he can take Christ's righteousness and give it to us. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul described that. He says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, right? That we can be righteous in God. So we have righteousness in Christ. So there is no more condemnation. Now once again, notice Paul here says, in Christ. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. When God sees me, he sees me as he sees his son. And since Christ will never be condemned by the Father, you and I, as a believer in Christ, will never be condemned. All guilt is removed. That's not something that the Israelite had on the Old Testament, but it's something that the believer in Christ has. All guilt has been forgiven. Now, Paul takes this a step further because in chapters 6 and 7, he says that we've not only been declared righteous, but we've been made new creation in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living in us to give us power to walk. And if you look at the last two verses of chapter 7, Paul ends by saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So yes, the believer is declared righteous, but God has not left us, to be dominated by sin our entire life until Christ comes and raptures us. He hasn't left us in defeat, but rather Paul's gonna go on and say that Christ has given us his Holy Spirit to give us power over that wretched man, the body of flesh, this sin nature that that you and I still have as a believer. And this power comes from the Spirit who gives us freedom. Freedom. This is Paul's teaching on the Holy Spirit in, the, in, these, in these verses here in Romans 8. So let's look at, secondly, in verses 2 through 13. In Christ there is freedom from the power of sin. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The word for there is linking this blessing to the no condemnation status that the believer has in Christ. Some translations have the word because the law of the spirit of life. You see, the law here is referring to an operating principle. It's referring to a power. And the operating principle of the law of sin and death dwells within our human body, our unredeemed human body. You see, the moment you believed in Christ, the Bible says you became born again, which means your spirit, which was dead, became alive again. So now you're a new creation in Christ. You have a new desire, a new hope, a new power. But you realize after you walk with Christ, you're like, you're not sinless, right? You still have temptations. You still have things. You still have behaviors that you need to check. Well, that's called your flesh. It's the law of sin, the principle of sin that dwells within this unredeemed human body. You see, your spirit is redeemed. But verse 23, if you look at that, says our body still needs redemption, And that's not going to happen until the rapture. Until your body is redeemed, you're going to have a flesh and you have the spirit. And Paul says, these two are contrary to one another in Galatians 5. They often are at war with one another. But Paul says, good news, God has given you a higher law than the flesh. Yes, there is a principle of sin that dwells in our human body. Yes. But God has given you a higher law, the spirit of life. And the spirit of life gives you power over that flesh that we have, that, that sin that we have. Sometimes it's described as a bird. Yes, there is the law of gravity, but the life in a bird gives it the ability to overcome the law of gravity, right? Even so, the spirit within us gives us power over this flesh that you and I have. So Paul says, oh, wretched man, who would deliver me from this body of death? Christ justified him. And Christ has given him power to walk in righteousness. Verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On the account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. There's a lot of stuff that the law can do. The law reveals God's righteousness, his holiness. The law is a guide. It guides people to Christ, as we'll learn in John. Jesus says, if you obeyed the law, you'd believe in me. Right, it leads us to Christ. The law also points out a person's sin because the law requires perfection. And since nobody can keep the law perfectly, it shows us that we have sin and we, we need a savior. Now what the law, uh, you know, the law can do things, but there's something that the law cannot do. And Paul says what the law cannot do is give a person power over their sinful flesh. The law was weak or ineffective in regard to your flesh. You see, the law commanded the Israelite, be holy, for I am holy. The law commanded the Israelite, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. These are good commands. It teaches us about God. But the law never provided the indwelling Holy Spirit for an Israelite to actually keep those laws. And because of that, Paul called it a ministry of condemnation in 2 Corinthians. A ministry of death. It, sh- it showed them that they were dead in sin. And Romans said... In Romans 7, Paul said, the more I tried to keep the law, the more I realized how dead I really was and how much I needed a savior. But God didn't give us a list of rules to follow and to be saved. God dealt with the problem of sin once and for all by sending Christ. God sent Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice that. Jesus was fully human, but yet without sin. He was man just like us, but but he had no sin in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came on the account of sin. That is, Jesus dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. He condemned sin in the flesh, which means he passed a judicial sentence on it. Jesus took our place and took our punishment, our condemnation as our sacrifice so we can receive his righteousness. Look at verse four. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the righteous requirement of the law is perfection. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. God can have no other, right? But through faith in Christ, the believer has received God's righteousness in us. He gives it to us by faith in Jesus. Here's what David Guzik says, Calvary pastor, comment on these verses. He says, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, and because we are in Christ, we fulfill the law. The law is fulfilled in us in regard to obedience, because Jesus' righteousness stands for ours. The law is fulfilled in us in regard to punishment, because any punishment demanded by the law was poured out upon Jesus. Paul does not say that, that we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. He carefully says that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. It isn't fulfilled by us, but in us. Simply put, Jesus is our substitute. Jesus was treated as a sinner so we can be treated as righteous. That's what God did for us. And because of that, God can justify us, declare us righteous. But not only that, God can give us his Holy Spirit and cause us to be born again. Based upon the righteousness that God gives us, God has also given us his Holy Spirit, which is why at the end of this verse, He says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The believer also has power to fulfill the law. And we fulfill the law by walking and obeying Christ's commands. And the Bible says, love others, and that is a fulfillment of the law. As we love God and love others as a Christian, we actually fulfill the law, something that the Old Testament saint could not do. Paul goes on in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh are unbelievers, those who have never put their faith in the gospel. Now, I'm told that the phrase according to could be rendered being according to, indicating that Paul's talking about nature here. He's talking about a nature that a person's born with, the unregenerated sinner. The unbeliever is dead in trespasses and sins, and therefore their lives are dominated by their flesh. But on the other hand, the believer is born again, so we can be led by the Spirit as we walk with him. A person's nature will determine their behavior. Those who are in their flesh, what do they do? They set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who are in the Spirit will set their minds on things of the Spirit. God's Spirit will will work in us. Now, when Paul uses the word mind here, he actually uses the same word that he used of Jesus in Philippians 2.5, where The Bible says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus had the mindset of humility. And because of that, he was willing to come to this earth as a man to die for us. So Jesus' love and his nature is what motivated him to come to this earth to die for us. And even so, a person's mind will will actually show their behavior, right? A person, if if they're a non-believer, it's because their nature. Jesus says it's because your heart is wicked, people do wicked things. Verse 6 For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mindset, a mindset of a, of a non believer is death. It is death. First, a person is dead in trespasses and sins they're separated from God, but also they're actually at enmity with God. They're servants of sin and Satan. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that they're dead and they're actually servants of sin and Satan, whether they know it or not. Now, think about Paul as a former Pharisee in these verses. Paul spent his entire life as a Pharisee, trying to be made righteous by the law, striving, even persecuting believers yet he was in the flesh. He could not please God. He couldn't even keep the law. It wasn't until he met Christ that God gave him power to, to do that. Verse nine, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of God or excuse, uh, spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the believer is not in the flesh, the believer is in the Spirit. This describes the realm that you and I are in. That's how the NIV translated it the realm or the sphere. It describes our life. It describes the believer. Since we have the spirit in us, we're born again. If you don't have the spirit living in you, you're not born again, then you're not a believer. You're not going to heaven. But if you have the spirit in you, it will affect your sphere of life. It will affect your behavior. Now, the word dwell here is actually the Greek word okio. Most of you guys know the okio Greek yogurt, right? Okios, Greek yogurt. It's the same word. Maybe they, are, maybe they should read the Bible, right? This word means to occupy, to be at home, to reside, to remain. That's what it means. The Spirit has come and made his home inside of this temple, this body of flesh. Paul said, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Act like it. right? That's that's what he says uh, to the Corinthians. Now, just as different residents affect how a house looks, even so, the nature of a person will affect their behavior. By the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks, right? You know, different renters, they move in, you can tell whether the person's lazy or not, right? Because the house is gonna be effective. You know, the grass is not gonna be mowed or whatever. But a new person moved in, new ownership, and things change. And that's the way the Spirit works in our life. The Spirit comes into our life and He says, all right, we gotta do some renovation here. And He works from the inside out as He changes us to, to walk more and more like God. Now, verse 10 makes it clear that the believer will not be sinless this side of heaven. Yes, the Spirit lives in us, but we still have a body that is dead. It's depraved. It still has impulses to sin. But the good news is we have power over it, is what Paul's teaching us. And the greater news is one day this body will be resurrected. Verse 23 says that. Christ just as he was raised from the Spirit, by the Spirit, his body was transformed, even so you and I will one day, by the Spirit, receive a resurrected body. That will happen at the rapture. When Christ resurrects the dead and raptures his church, we have that hope. Verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the word, therefore, means that Paul is applying these things now in verses 2 through 11. Since you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have freedom. You're no longer a debtor to the flesh. The word debtor means to live under obligation, to live as a slave under its impulses, to obey it as your master. Paul says, it's not your master. We need to have correct biblical thinking. Paul says, you do not have to sin. You can say no to the flesh and reckon it dead. Rather, we should say yes to God and and walk with him. The believer has the assurance of salvation. We are told that there's no condemnation and there's no separation at the end of this chapter. But while that's so, Paul gives us a very sober warning in verse 13. Sin does affect a person. You're not immune from it. If a person gives in to temptation, that temptation leads to sin, and sin leads to destruction, James says in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown, brings forth death. It's very clear. Temptation is not from God. We live we live in a fallen world, we have still a fallen flesh. And we have an enemy, and he wants to tempt, and he wants to lure people away. That temptation is not sin. It's sin when you give into it, and you bite. It's like a lure. And once that sin takes root, it can ensnare. And if it's not checked or rooted out, it can actually get a foothold and lead to death. Destruction of your family, of your your walk with the Lord, sometimes leading even to physical death as a discipline. Now, third, in verses fourteen through eighteen, we see in Christ there's freedom from fear. Verse fourteen: For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Paul says the Spirit also gives us evidence of our adoption. The evidence comes from His leading in our life, and this leading is really working, referring to that general work of the Spirit in our life. Theologically, it's called sanctification. Right when the Holy Spirit comes in your life, he starts to change you. He makes you more like Christ day by day. He gives you a desire to obey God and a hatred of sin. And Paul says that this is characteristic of your life. If you want to obey God, if you you hate sin, Paul says, well, then you're a child of God. It means the Spirit's leading you. He's changing you day by day. And if he's leading you, well, then that means that you're a son. Now, the word son is a technical and cultural word. And and it applies to both men and women just as men are called the bride of Christ. Sometimes people say, "Son, son, I'm not a son, I'm a daughter. Well, men are also the bride of Christ. And so Paul's using a technical word here. And son refers to sonship. And sonship was an important concept in the Jewish and Roman culture. You see, the son, the adult son, received privileges that others did not have. The son can enjoy the father's estate, and he, and he can actually receive the father's inheritance one day. Even so, God has a firstborn son, Christ. Doesn't mean he was created, but it means he's first in preeminence. He is God's only begotten son. And he had the blessings of the father and he's heir to the father's kingdom. And we're told that in Psalm 2. But not only does God have his only begotten son, God has chosen to adopt children through Christ, as we're told in Ephesians. He has adopted you and I Through faith in Jesus, and the concept of adoption was important to the Romans because it was, um, you know, a cultural thing in the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus Octavian was actually adopted by Julius Caesar as an adult and was given the right to be the next ruler of Rome. And so, when Paul talked about adoption, the Romans understood what he was talking about. It was to receive this blessing as a mature adult to receive an inheritance. Now, here's a couple facts about Roman adoption. Once adopted, a person was officially transferred from his old family to his new family. His physical father, his slave master, had no rights over him whatsoever. He was now under the control of his new father. The old life of the son was also wiped out. All legal debts were even forgiven. The adopted person was regarded as a new person and the actual son of the father bearing the father's name. The adopted son became an heir, and if there was a natural-born son, he became the joint heir with that natural-born son. You see what Paul's communicating here to you and I. Through the Spirit living in us, he has testified that you and I are sons. We have freedom from sin and Satan who once controlled us. Through Christ, we're set free. All of our debts have been forgiven. We've been given a new nature and a new name, we have a close relationship with the Father and we have a future inheritance that we look forward to of glory. But it also speaks of intimacy and freedom from fear. Look at verse 15. For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So Paul gets into the household now, this Roman household. And he said, think about it. If you're a son, think about the difference between a Roman slave and a son, You see, the Roman slave, he had no rights. He had no freedom from fear. His life was based upon his works. He had no security. His life was one of bondage. But the son, on the other hand, was different. He had intimacy with the father. He had security. He had a life of hope with the father. And that's what you and I are in Christ. Paul says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you didn't receive a spirit of fear worried about God condemning you. You received sonship that God has placed you in his own household and loves you. We can even use the term Abba, Father. This is what Jesus used in Mark 14.36. Jesus prayed out Abba, Father. We can use that same term that Jesus used for his Father. That's how much God loves us and what Christ has done for us as he brought us into this faith. Verse 16, but the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In the Old Testament, a truth was established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And Paul says, I have two witnesses for you here. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you have your regenerated human spirit. So you have the Holy Spirit and your human spirit, and they're testifying to you that you are a child of God. Now, this word, children of God, is a different word than the word son. The word son means to be adopted. But children of God means that God has actually made you his actual son. It means a born one. So God has placed his nature in you. And so, yes, God legally has adopted us, but he's made us his actual children by placing his Holy Spirit in us. Peter says we're partakers of the divine nature. We're not gods by any means, right? But we are children of God in the sense that he has placed his Holy Spirit in us because he loved us so much. We now bear that family, that family likeness, right? Right? and tell his father we have, right? Type of thing as we walk. We walk in love, we walk in truth, we walk in light just as the father is. Verse 17, it gets better. And if children than heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Jesus, God's only begotten son, is an heir. He will inherit the kingdoms of this earth. He will come back and rule and reign in the millennial kingdom for a 1,000 years. But the church of Laodicea, those who overcame, were also promised by Jesus in Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus said, I overcame, and the Father has granted me the right to sit on his throne. And those who have overcome, those who believe in me, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne. So we are joint heirs with Christ. We are going to rule and reign in this thousand-year kingdom that's coming up in Revelation 20. We have been given an inheritance, and Peter says, it's reserved in heaven for you, and you're kept by the power of God as the lights flicker a little bit. So it's just a sign there. So, no, that, that's what, it's what God has done. So fourth in verses 18 through 25, Christ has given us freedom from hopelessness. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So we have the Spirit living in us. We have an awesome hope. But Peter, or excuse me, Paul said at the end of verse 17, if we suffer with him, this life will consist of suffering as we live in this church age. But you and I can have the grace and the hope in our suffering as we look forward to our future inheritance. Paul had suffering like you read about. I mean, you know, and you can actually read about it in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. They were serious, but he was able to put them into perspective by considering them in light of God's glory that's going to be revealed in us. He says, when I consider the suffering on one hand and what the future holds for me on the other, they're not even worthy to be compared. That's an accounting term. can't even compare them. There's no comparison. And that gave Paul hope to endure his suffering and to endure these hardships for the name of Christ. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation longs for glory, and the Christian longs for glory. Now, Paul in verses 19 through 22 is going to per- personify creation as eagerly waiting with expectation for the revealing of God's adopted sons. John Stott says this concerning this phrase, earnest expectation. He says it means to wait with the head raised and eyes fixed on that point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. Paul's talking about the second coming of Jesus, in which Jude says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. There on the horizon, Christ will appear, Revelation 19 says, with his church and come back in glory. And creation is personified as looking up, focusing on that horizon when that glory will come. Creation is longing for it because creation will begin being restored at that point and finally recreated, as we'll see at the end of Revelation. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so when God made mankind on the sixth day, he blessed them and he gave them dominion over the earth. Adam was the head of creation, and so therefore, when Adam sinned, all creation was affected by Adam's sin. Now, the bondage that came on physical creation didn't come because creation chose to sin. No, it says because Adam chose to sin. But while creation didn't sin, God chose to allow the effects to come upon this earth in the animal kingdom and everything around us. Why did he do that? Paul tells us why in verse 21. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, God allowed the fall because he had a plan to restore it through Christ. And that restoration will come when the God's adopted children are revealed in glory, and that's when creation will be, begin being delivered from the curse of Adam's sin, The Old Testament prophets predicted that during the millennial age, things would be restored. The lion would lie down with the lamb, right? Streams in the desert, all these things. That's going to happen in the millennial age, in the thousand year kingdom. And then at the end of Revelation, we're told that God recreates a new heavens and a new earth. So we're looking forward to this. Verse 22 For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So creation is groaning. It's been groaning since Paul wrote this epistle in 56, 57 AD. It's still groaning today, and it will do so until God births his kingdom at Christ's second coming. But the Christian is also groaning, and Paul says, good news, you and I will receive the adoption, the redemption of our body one day. No, wait, I thought we were already adopted. Yes, we are. We've been made sons by the Spirit, but we have not yet received the full blessings and privileges of our adoption. That will not happen until the rapture, which happens before the tribulation. The rapture is going to happen. We'll receive a resurrected body. We'll go back to heaven for seven years. And then after the seven year tribulation, we'll come back with Christ in glory. And that's when we'll rule and reign with him in a thousand year kingdom. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? The believer is saved in hope. That is, the believer is saved for glory. Salvation is a total package of grace from start to finish. Some people say, well, yeah, you're justified by grace through faith, but, man, you got to work. And if you don't work, well, you'll lose your salvation, and then you'll have no hope. Paul says, no, you were saved in hope. That is, you were saved in this hope. The fact that one day your body will be resurrected and you will be with Christ in glory in this kingdom. And God is going to accomplish that work through our salvation that we have through the indwelling spirit. And if you have the spirit, then you have the evidence that God is going to complete the work that he began. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 3-5 that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Christ rose again from the dead, we have objective physical evidence, you know, historical evidence that you and I will one day be resurrected like him. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So, yes, we have the Spirit living in us. We have an amazing hope, but we still have a flesh. We still have a fallen world around us. We still have suffering in this creation as it experiences the fall and the curses of Adam's sin. But Paul says we can eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Perseverance is the word that means to patiently endure under or in your circumstances. And just like Paul, who was given grace to endure, you and I have been given grace to endure, to walk in this hope. And so you and I are in Christ. This life was a narrow way that we entered. It was through the gospel and the gospel alone alone. But as soon as we entered in, God has opened up our eyes as we walk with him through his word and by his Holy Spirit to see these blessings that we have. So look at your life as a discovery. Every day, God wants to spend time with you in his word. God wants to walk with you, and he wants to open your eyes more and more to show you the glories that he has for you. And when Paul in Ephesians talked about all of our blessings, he then prayed that the believers would, their eyes would be enlightened, they would know the hope of their calling in the Lord.